program. Well, I'm a long ways from my notes. They're way down there. You think that might mean I preach shorter without my notes, but it might mean I preach longer, so take that however you like. Some days it feels like there's a lot of, uh, well, let's just call it uh, small church family uh, um, things that go on and, and little little glitches, etc., but... Um, but I hope you just feel quiet at home here this morning. Today or this week, we've said it a few times, uh, we, we're celebrating Independence Day. We're celebrating uh, the, the 4th of July, freedom of governance from the British crown. <laughs> no offense to my future son-in-law. <laughs> freedom to worship, freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. You know, for good or bad, Freedom is the preeminent virtue in our national culture. There's a good side of that, and there's a bad side of it. But we pursue freedom with, with all of our hearts. It's, the, it's, it's what drives us as a culture. We want to, to throw off any, any bonds and to feel free and to be able to, to do what we want. But why, in the middle of that kind of an emphasis, do we tend to feel bound? We tend to feel trapped. We have the burden of, oh, we still have this, uh, uh, doing something funny to me here. All right. Let me start over. No, that's just, <laughs> thank you, Carlos, save the day again. We feel this, this burden of the competing demands. Everything wants our attention. Everything wants our money. Everything wants our, wants our time. Uh, think financially, you come across a dollar, and uh, your kids have their hand out for it. You know, the bill comes in the mail. You know, the church wants it. You get uh, invitations from, from missionaries. Uh, you see that tasty treat you want, then you go on Amazon, and there's all kinds of ways you can spin that. Whatever. There's all these competing tugs. And then, so that's if you have a dollar. What if you have an hour? There's all kinds of things that we could spend doing that, uh, entertaining ourselves. Uh, our, our family wants uh, that hour. Our boss wants that hour. Our phone wants that hour. The chores, the maintenance, everything grabs at our time as well. And then we think about just the burden of uh, of people, <laughs> I think a simple interaction. Uh, you're on your street and you meet one of your neighbors walking their dog. There's this burden to uh, remember their name. There's a, <laughs> there's a burden. You feel this pressure, like oh, I should say something about uh, about Jesus to my neighbor. Then there's this this competing burden of oh, I don't want to offend. And then there's the burden to. Uh, to extend grace uh, after what their dog did in your yard. And there's all these competing things that are going on in our minds and, uh, and uh, the conversation and the tug, and we feel kind of tied up. Uh, what, what, do I, what do I do in all these different situations? With all these competing demands, we tend to get paralyzed from forward motion. We get distracted from what is most essential and most core. But the fact is that this world of competing demands is just part of being uh, human, part of being citizens of, 
of humanity, citizens of this planet, so to speak. But as followers of Jesus, our citizenship is actually not here, is it? Our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our role here on earth is not as citizens, but as ambassadors, as representatives of the king of heaven. That's why he has left us here. So our central truth this morning is that ambassadors are unencumbered. We don't have to bear the same, um, the same bondage of the citizen of earth. And yet we get needlessly conflicted or entangled. So in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, we see what it means to live an unencumbered, uh, unentangled, unconflicted life as ambassadors of Christ. Here, here's kind of the setting of what's going on. If you've been with us as we've been studying Mark, a few chapters back, Jesus called his disciples um, in chapter 3. Uh, verse 14 says he, Jesus, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles uh, for two reasons, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. This twofold aspect of what he called his disciples for. Well, in the narrative so far, we see lots and lots of the first happening. Wherever Jesus goes, his disciples are with him. They are eating with him. They're, they're right in the boat with him. They're right next to him as he's, he's healing and doing all these other things. They're, they're with him, with him, with him. But now we're going to be introduced to the second part of why he calls us, and that is to send us out as his ambassadors on a mission. Discipleship, or being a follower of Jesus, I, I think can be, uh, can be grasped with three words, and these are in your outline if you're following along. And the first is allegiance, which is a, a transfer of trust or belief. This is what happens when we come to Christ. We have transferred our allegiance from here to there. We've turned from where we were headed. We turn to trust in Christ. It's a change of allegiance. Uh, belief does not mean just giving uh, intellectual assent to a body of information, but it's a change of, of trust or allegiance. The second word that I think captures what we all need to be thinking about and doing as, as followers of Jesus is to be an apprentice of Jesus. An apprentice is somebody who, who is, is with the master. They watch him. They mimic him. They follow him. They learn from him. And it's this kind of understudy, understudent role. And that's what discipleship is. We come alongside Jesus. We try, to, we try to mimic him and do the things he does and think the way he does about situations, etc. But the third area that is a, an essential part of being a follower of Jesus you may have guessed it, is being an ambassador. We are sent out for something. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, we, we'll look at two different ways ambassadors can live unencumbered lives. We, do, we don't need the same kind of entanglement that others might have. And, and then we'll see a real vivid example of what it looks like to live um, an entangled life as opposed to one that is not. So we'll be in Mark 6, starting in verse 7. If you're following along in one of those Bibles in the, in the chair in front of you, it's on page 841, I believe. Unencumbered. 
Mark 6, starting in verse 7. We, we read this earlier. He called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So how should we live unencumbered lives as ambassadors of Jesus? First of all, to pursue this unencumbered mission, not tied up with all these temporary things. And I I believe, uh, as I've studied this passage this week and read different commentators, that uh, these, I think, quite obviously are not Jesus' universal detailed instructions for all of us. Um, Otherwise, shame on everybody who's not wearing sandals and who has more than one tunic. Um, But... But the gist of it, or, or the principle of it, is, I think, just simply to travel light as an ambassador of Jesus. This sense that this, uh, this thing's urgent. Uh, these people need you right now. Uh, I'm sending you out. Go. Don't go, um, you know, and gather all this extra things. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Just go. It's an urgency and a simplicity of mission. And what is the mission? Uh, something we have discussed throughout this year. Uh, what's our relationship to the world supposed to be? Well, to live uh, with integrity in the world, and then also to restore with goodness, which we might describe as relieving human affliction in Jesus' name. This is what Jesus was doing all the time. He was just going around uh, relieving human affliction. And then, secondly, to restore with the good news, which is the same meaning as the gospel. And now it's the good news about Jesus. This is, this is the mission that we should be about. Going around, doing good things in Jesus' name to relieve human affliction. And telling the good news about Jesus to all who will listen. I think what keeps us from accomplishing this really central mission is not that we don't like it, or not that we don't think it's important, but that we just don't get around to it. (laughs) Other things tend to crowd it out. Some who follow Jesus, they respond to the message about Jesus, but they never bear fruit. They never, it never just takes root and flourishes in their lives. Nothing really of eternal significance goes on or happens. Um, Jesus described this kind of person in the parable of the sower that we saw just a few weeks ago, talking about different kinds of people. There are others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But what happens? The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in, and they choke out the word, and it proves to be unfruitful. It's just pointless. It never, nothing eternal really became of it. And it's the same thing today that distracts us from the central mission. Uh, we get caught up in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. Oh, I just want that one more thing. The desires of other things, we just, it just gets crowded and weighed down and distracts us from the central mission. In Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, well, the second one, he, he gives the analogy of a soldier. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This language of being enlisted and sent by one, uh, 
this morning we're talking about uh, the ambassador imagery. We are sent by Jesus for a specific mission. And so we're not going to get all tangled up and intertwined and laid, weighed down by, by other things. I was thinking, imagine a, uh, a Navy SEAL. Whoop. Oh, you get spoilers. Imagine Naval, Navy SEAL going behind enemy lines to rescue POWs. And uh, on his mission, he's like, this place is really pretty nice. I think I might invest in some real estate here. And he's like, oh, uh, where where'd Johnson go? Oh, he's off testing, you know, the street food. You know, he's, he's, he's wandering through the villages like, oh, this is really tasty. Can you imagine what this would not happen? There's a mission, a critical mission at hand. And yet sometimes this is how we respond. We have this, this uh, eternal life and death mission that we're part of, and we just kind of get distracted. Oh, this is really, I'm just, oh, I'll get to that eventually. And, uh. We get tied down and entangled with the things that will never last. We know we should reach out with goodness and good news, but we just keep putting it off. Well, I'll get serious, you know, once I graduate from high school or, oh, you know, once I, you know, get married and have a family, uh, once I get established in my career, once I retire, once I this, once I that, and we just never quite get around to making an eternal impact around us. So, looking at this passage, we might wonder, is everybody supposed to take a vow of poverty? Is everybody supposed to um, have a full-time uh, career of um, gospel ministry? I, I don't think so, because we see in the New Testament examples of, of a variety of, of, of situations and places in life people are in, and people who had money and people who didn't in the church. So what might this mean um, universally for us? And I think one helpful way to think about this with our time and our money is the tithe. Um, to take it right off the top so it doesn't get lost. So thinking first about, about money, what if all of us just scraped 10% right off the top and said, this is for eternal stuff before I start thinking about anything else? We just did that. What, what if we did that with our time? Um, I'm just making wild guesses. Some of you have a lot more and some of you a lot less. But, but pretend you have 10 hours a week of discretionary time. This is your, um, your TV time and your, your reading time, your newspaper time, your internet time. Uh, you're walking the dog. You're playing video games. You're riding your bike, um, whatever it might be, staring at the wall, whatever you do. for think, Say you have 10 hours to do that a week. What if you just carved out one hour and said, this is just, this is just for eternity. I'm going to schedule it. I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to be involved in this for eternity's sake. Just give it to the Lord right off the top. I think that tithe principle helps us bridge that gap between um, how we tend to function and, uh, and, and this example here of just, well, don't take anything. Just run out. The demands of this world will take every dollar, every minute, every breath, if we let it. So let's pursue an unencumbered mission. Jesus continues his instructions, verse 10. Verse 10 to 11. He said to them, he's still speaking with his disciples, getting ready to send them out. 
He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. I think here we see that to live an unencumbered life, we have to pursue an unencumbered message. A message that's not bound by this fear this worry, this consideration for how people might uh, respond to the message. Two things keep us from living in unencumbered, as unencumbered ambassadors. One is the competing pull of all these temporary things that are all around us that we could pursue. But the other is just this fear of how people will respond. What if we go out doing good things and talking about Jesus and people don't respond well? Well, that can be really paralyzing to us and we don't move forward. Well, Jesus prepares his disciples for both hospitality and for hostility in these just these very few words. Some will receive you. He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there. Some will just welcome you in. Well, we'll stay at that house. Don't keep trying to, you know, roam around and upgrade like, oh, but these people have, you know, these people have a pool or whatever. Just stay there, receive their hospitality. Some will receive you. Others will reject you. He says, if any place will not receive you, they'll not listen to you. So from the get-go, Jesus sends them out and says, guess what? Some will embrace the message. Some will reject the message. Some will embrace you. Some will reject you. And Jesus says, some will embrace me and some will reject me. This is all built into Jesus' call to you as ambassadors. So regardless of how people might respond to the message of hope in Christ, the message, it stays the same. <laughs> we still give the same gospel. Mark 1.15, in the beginning of this book, he simply said, Jesus went around saying, repent and believe the good news. This is a, a very short form of, of Jesus' message. Paul in Romans 1.16, a familiar verse, he says, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, I can't be timid about this. I can't like, oh, well, I don't know. What if they don't believe it? Um, I, it's, it's God's power to save people. So I just, need to, I just need to tell people. I need to talk about it. I need to explain it. I need to live it. So we get so tongue-tied and bound up that we don't know what to say or do. Think, what if they reject me? What if they ask questions I can't answer? What if they label me intolerant or fundamentalist or narrow? What if they mock me? What if, what if, what if? And Jesus says, guess what? Some will embrace it. Some won't. And and that's really not your problem. (laughs) You're responsible to share the good news. You're not responsible for how people respond. We learn in the parable of the sower that it's, uh, it's the condition of the heart. God prepares hearts for the message. God transforms hearts with the message. Um, I think that in some cases, we've come to see the gospel presentation as a sales pitch. And if you're good enough at explaining it and, you know, you know making the sale or whatever, then people will uh, respond and come into the kingdom of God. That, that's not how the Bible describes it at all. God prepares the hearts. You just tell them the good news different spokespeople for God in the Bible. It seems like God chose them particularly because they were terrible spokespeople. You know, Moses can't speak and, and Paul can't write or whatever it might be. God chooses them because it's, uh, it's God who changes the hearts and all we need to do is say the good news.
So what is the good news? Um, in the New Testament, there's a real variety of gospel presentations of how the gospel is explained. Um, the book of Romans is this whole treatise on, on the gospel and its implication for Jews and for Gentiles, really just rich and profound. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, there's this more of a creedal statement of the gospel in the first few verses of chapter 15. It says, receive this, that Christ died for sins and he rose on the third day. That's the gospel. Don't forget it. It's like a kind of a creedal statement. Um, kind of a on the fly, Acts 16, the jailer says, oh, how can I get saved? Simple answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's the gospel. So there's kind of these varieties of how it's described. And there's also a variety of responses. What happened after Peter's message in Acts 2.41? Over 3,000 people got saved. Just like that. I'd be super stoked as a pastor to give a message like that. And 3,000 people, they wouldn't fit in this town. But uh, just floods of people like, yeah, yeah, we want that. Really incredible. One sermon, all these people respond. A few chapters later, Stephen, he's been talking about the gospel, and he's executed for it. And so as, as we see the church story unfold, we get both responses, and those are just really drastic uh, illustrations of both. So to live an unencumbered life as an ambassador, we need to not be all wrapped up with, well, what are people going to think? But instead... Tear off those chains and just talk about the good news of Jesus. Christ came to save sinners like me. And tell that to your neighbors, tell that to your family, tell that to your friends. So what was the response of the disciples when Jesus gave, him, gave them these instructions? They simply went out with word and works, with goodness and good news. Verse 12 says, they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. We'll see the proclamation. That's the good news. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Uh, goodness. They were alleviating human suffering. So they went out just like Jesus told them to, and they got uh, different responses just like Jesus told them would happen. And so in these next verses we see... Um, kind of the talk of the town, what people were thinking about, how people were responding to Jesus. Verse 14 and 15. Uh, this reaches all the way to the palace. King Herod heard it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, oh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, oh, I think he's Elijah. And others, oh, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. See, everybody has this opinion about Jesus. Like today, everybody kind of has a, an opinion about Jesus, good or bad. The king, well, he wasn't exactly a king, but, uh, but Herod, he, he liked to be called king. His verdict was, verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he said, it's John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised. Because Herod lives in this state of constant paranoia. Um, and then Mark goes and does this flashback so we understand why would Herod, uh, of all people, say, no, I think Jesus is John the Baptist? And so we get this, this account. We get this really vivid example of unencumbered living. What it looks like to live this way where, 
where we're not just bound by all these, uh, all these earthly things. We're not bound by, by what people might think of the message. And so we get this flashback. So this is Herod Antipas. Um, if you're trying to figure out the Herods, uh, good luck with that. So there's several, they're interrelated. Some of them have names like Herod the Great, not because he was a great guy, but because he built a lot of great things. Um, and so there's this, this, um, this group of it kind of extended, sometimes interrelated, family uh, of, of Herods that were in power. Um, Herod Antipas was um, a tetrarch, a ruler of a fourth of, um, of the Jewish realm that was in turn under Rome. So he liked to call himself a king, but he was really a one-quarter king that was under, like, the real king. So anyway, um, but anyway, he kept calling himself king. He married the daughter of, of an Arabian king, and then he became enamored with Herodias, his half-niece, who was married to his half-brother. Everyone still following this? I could draw a diagram, but there's too many intersecting lines. So he, he just really wanted um, Herodias for himself, so he divorced the Arabian princess to marry his half-niece, Herodias. Well, John the Baptist, freely, you know, unencumbered, uh, denounced this marriage. You shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. He's telling the the king this. Uh, Verse 19, and Herodias had this grudge against him, against John, and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So kind of this curious situation. Uh, Herodias wants to kill him, but Herod's like, no, let's keep him around because I know he's a good guy. And I like to listen to him talk, although I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and so it's this weird kind of thing happening. But, but Herod is really conflicted in all this. Well, then the opportunity came that uh, Herodias was looking for. Herod threw himself a birthday party, which, you know, because that's the kind of guy Herod was. He threw his big party, and uh, other historians, Josephus, tell us this party was down at his, uh, his other palace uh, on the Dead Sea. All these dignitaries were there. It was a big deal. And then Herodias' daughter came out and, uh, and danced for all the men at this, uh, at this big party. You can just picture the scene, you know, they're all drinking, it's all these, these guys, and he's trying to impress them, and they bring out the girl, and she, she dances. Dances in such a way that Herod uh, makes all these oaths of, oh, I'll give her whatever she asks for, up to half my kingdom, which is not like he could give away half the kingdom because it wasn't technically his, but it's just a thing people like to say back then. Um, so he felt, um, he, he was in this dilemma because uh, she says, okay, I'll take up on that offer. She goes and talks to mom. Mom says, um, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a dinner plate. How sick is that? And so she comes back in and says, yeah, here's what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a dinner plate. And so Herod's stuck. He's like, well, do it. He sends his executioner. They pull him out of prison, cut his head off put it on a plate, there you go, right at the party. He gives it to her, she gives it to mom, and that's uh, the thing that haunted Herod from that time forward. Verse 27, kind of the end of that story, says, Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Okay, so it's cruel, it's gruesome, it's a tragic story. But for whom is this a tragedy? Consider just for a few minutes the two characters in this account. First, John, who is really the free prisoner. He's in chains. He's in prison. He's bound up, but he was living the unencumbered life. (laughs) It's crazy. He had this unencumbered mission. Uh, Notice that he was 100% free to obey God. Verse 20, he was a righteous and holy man. Uh, He was right with God. He was untethered from the sinful life. John was completely free to obey God. Uh, I've mentioned before um, a friend of ours, uh, Ron Barnes, who did our uh, premarital counseling we knew from, from, uh, from college. And uh, when I was getting ready to move up here to take this role, I just posted something on Facebook about it. And and he saw that post. We hadn't talked in a long time, but uh, he could read between the lines that, like, this was really intimidating. This was really scary to step into this role. Um, and he, he said this thing, or he, he posted it. He says, Josh, all you need to focus on is walk with God and enjoy him. That's it. That's all any of us need to do is to walk with God and enjoy him. Uh, just a few months back, Ron was actually... Uh, hiking and uh and he fell off a ledge somehow and uh and died um just a real like fluke thing that happened and um ron was a guy who lived uh this message he he lived free he freely loved people freely talked about jesus and uh he was that kind of guy his life was not a waste whatsoever he lived free John also had uh, not just the unencumbered mission, but he also had this unencumbered message. He was 100% free to express God's message no matter how unpopular it was. <laughs> Verse 18, going back, says, For John had been saying to Herod, like he kept saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Like, anybody could figure that out. And so John just kept saying that, even though Herod had the power to imprison him and to execute him. So you just see this, this freedom that John lived out. Freedom of mission, freedom of message. So contrast that with Herod, the enslaved king. (laughs) I should have put that in quotes. As a king, he could have just stuff he wanted. He'd just grab it, he named it, and he he could have that thing. When I went to uh, Israel, um, that's my, my brother-in-law, Rich, and then the other guy is Ronan, who was our, our tour guide, an Israeli. And uh, he's a really great guy, and he had this thing he would say is, it's good to be king. Because we'd, we'd look at these, these ruins, and we'd see that kings did ridiculous things, like Herod, uh, not Antipas, but Herod the Great, the baby killer. Um, he's like, well, this mountain's great, but I want to put my palace over here, so guys, move that mountain over here. Because he was king, he could do that. Or, I want a swimming pool big enough to put a battleship in. So, 
they did. So this is the thing, you know, when a king, you're king, you could do these kinds of things. So Ronan would often say, uh, it's great to be king, but is it? <laughs> Think of Herod Antipas. He had power. He had money. <laughs> he had pleasures. He had the delicacies. He had multiple palaces. He had the women, but he was a slave. He was a slave of his past mistakes. He lived in fear constantly that, oh, somehow John's going to come back and, you know, and it'll be my doom. And so he lived in this paranoia about just life's regrets. He was a slave of public opinion. Because of trying to maintain a certain image with his court, he had a guy executed that he actually thought was a great guy. That's, that's slavery there, to be so bound by the opinion of others. He was a slave to his own desires. He, he had this wife. He wanted another one. He's like, I'm just going to do it, even though everybody says it's a bad idea. He was a slave of careless words. He made all these oaths, and now he has to eat them. He's, he's a slave. <laughs> don't, don't envy the king that has everything he wants. He was caught between this obligation to John, this manipulative wife, the expectations of his court, his own lust, and he's all tethered up and tied down and entangled and enslaved. We might be tempted to uh, pity John and uh, envy Herod, but we really should be the other way around. The things we pursue in our quest for freedom can enslave us. And just think about that just for a moment, just personally. We can be enslaved by things we've done in the past that just keep kind of coming back to haunt us. Be enslaved by just compulsive craving. You know, we, we want that thing. We know it's bad for us, and we just keep doing it. Enslaved by careless words that alienate us in relationships. Enslaved by just self-gratification and Enslaved by image management. We just have to appear to everybody a certain way, and that just rules over our day-to-day decisions. And we just get all entangled and enslaved. Compare that with all you have to do is walk with God and enjoy Him. Ah, wouldn't that be nice to live that way? And we all can live that way. All you have to do is walk with God and enjoy Him. The problem with that other way of living where we're entangled with all these other things is uh, one is that it just simply ruins us. But the other thing is it distracts us from the central, most important mission that Jesus has sent us on as his ambassadors. To pursue an unencumbered mission, not getting all entangled in these other things and to pursue an unencumbered message where we can freely speak of the good news of Christ without being so bound by what people might think. So remember where your citizenship is. If you uh, are a child of God, your citizenship is in heaven. Remember who your king is. Uh, That's King Jesus. (laughs) This world might be ruled by this uh, enslaving self-indulgence, this pursuit of freedom that leads to, to bondage. That's the law of the land. But Very fortunately, we are not bound by the law of this land. I just want to encourage you, as an ambassador of a heavenly king, exercise 
your diplomatic immunity. <laughs> this doesn't apply to you here. You don't have to be enslaved like others are. You don't have to be a slave to uh, your past regrets and to public opinion and to your own lust. You don't have to be enslaved to these things and encumbered by them. You could live live free because, uh, because you're a child of the king. You're a citizen of heaven. So exercise your diplomatic immunity. Uh, let me pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, I am just so thankful that you have set us free. You paid the ultimate price so that we can live an unencumbered life and have a mission of eternal significance and that we can know you and be known by you in the most precious of ways. God, I pray that we would be just anxious to throw off anything that might uh, drag us down from uh, living the life that you've called us to. May we live free because we've been set free and do it for your glory and for your sake. Amen.